Thanks for tuning in to our Cypress Church podcast. To learn more about our church, visit our website at cypresschurch.net and join us for our Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. Subscribe on iTunes for more. My name is Bob Vroon, and I am a retired pastor and part of the preaching team here at Cypress Church. And it's wonderful to see all of you here this morning. Uh, you made it through the holidays, and you're still here, right? <laughs> okay. Let's, let's take just a, a moment to uh, approach the Lord in prayer. Father, lead and guide us now. Uh, may your Holy Spirit uh, move in our midst and speak to us so that uh, what you want to accomplish this morning will be accomplished. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our scripture reading this morning, and I want to start with that, uh, is in Acts chapter 9, and it'll be really verse 1 to 25, but I'm not going to read all of those. I'm going to uh, read 1 to 9 and then skip down to 20 to 25. Um, So, uh, Acts chapter 9, it should... There it is. (laughs) Very good. It showed up. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And then the next section, it tells of how Ananias is called of the Lord and goes and and lays his hands on him and he receives his sight. And uh, then it says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And it says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. That concludes our reading from God's Word. Many of us in America today 
lament the great divisions in our society. It might be helpful for us to remember that, that Jesus and Paul grew up in a time of great divisions in their society. One division that they were very much aware of was that, that between the Jews and the Greeks. The Romans intentionally spread the Greco-Roman culture, which they believed to be very superior. But the Jews felt that their culture was better because it was greatly influenced by God's revelation to them. And besides, it was more Eastern and not so Western. And make no mistake, there was great hostility between the Jews and the Greeks. The Apostle Paul was born and raised in Tarsus, which was primarily Western and Greco-Roman. But it was near the border of where those Eastern cultures began, and it had a thriving Jewish community in it. And so Paul, whose Hebrew name was Saul, became familiar with both cultures in his youngest years. Sounds like he would make a good missionary. <laughs> that, that comes later, not in this sermon. In his letter to the Romans, which he would later write, one can see elements of his Greek education especially his logical arguments and his linear thinking. You know what linear thinking is? You know, A leads to B, leads to C, straight line, logic, 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 almost mathematical, right? And that's Western thinking. At some point, probably about age 13, since that's when the Jews felt that you became a man, Saul was sent to Jerusalem to study under Rabbi Gamaliel, who was considered the greatest teacher among the Pharisees of his day. Now, Saul became a Pharisee, and like most Pharisees, he came to believe that salvation was received by observing the law. He was on a path of works righteousness. What, what kind of person was Saul by nature? We have many uh, clues throughout the Bible as you read his writings and so on. There's a wonderful description of him in a biographical novel on the life of Paul that was written in 1944 by a man named Sholem Ash. And here's what he has to say. Saul was regarded in the school of Gamaliel as a hard man. He was widely known for his obstinacy. When Saul had made up his mind on any question, it was useless to try to change him. In argument, he was passionate and unregardful of the feelings of others. But if the other students did not love Saul, they did admire and respect him. No one had ever challenged the purity of his motives. In his heart blazed the fire of a great love for the God of Israel. Unfortunately, Saul became convinced that Jesus was a false Messiah, an imposter, and a blasphemer. And he believed the resurrection was a story made up by the apostles. 
And he saw Christ followers as dangerous subverters of the true faith of Israel. And he therefore came to believe that they must be eliminated. His mentor, Gamaliel, advocated a much more gentle and open-minded approach. But Saul had made up his mind. These people must be arrested and tried before the Sanhedrin and punished appropriately with beatings and sometimes even stoned to death. That's what happened to Stephen and Saul voted for it and stood there holding his clothes while he was stoned to death. You have to wonder, did Saul question what he was doing sometimes? Did he wonder in his heart of hearts, am I really on the right path? As he looked into the eyes of these Christians, he saw love, even while he was showing them anything but love. And he saw them being willing to suffer for their faith, if necessary. And he heard Stephen, just before he died, saying, Lord, do not hold this against them, meaning those who are stoning him. Do you think maybe Saul's conscience was already beginning to accuse him during this time? Maybe. But he wasn't ready to change yet. Not yet. He had chased most of the Christians out of Jerusalem. But now they were spreading the gospel wherever they went. That's kind of like a good news, bad news joke, right? To him. Most alarming to him was the word that the faith was spreading among the Jews in, in Damascus, which was on a major trade route. And so it would spread from there to all kinds of other places, wherever that trade went. Well, he had to get permission, and he did, from the high priest to go arrest the Christians in and around Damascus. It was a long journey, about 150 miles. Not a big deal to us, right? Get in your car, less than three hours, right? Or depending on how the 405 is, maybe maybe several hours. <laughs> but for them in those days, it would be made on foot and uh, would be probably about a six-day trip, either on foot or maybe on horseback. 150 miles with many dangers along the way. Saul was probably part of a caravan of soldiers who could aid him in arresting people. Apparently the trip went okay most of the way, but then something happened near Damascus. A light from heaven flashed around Saul, we are told, and he fell to the ground. And again, I refer to this biographical novel because it fills in some great details and helps our imagination a bit. Before Saul appears a man, a rabbi in his prayer shawl, with great eyes, mournful yet radiant, filled with faith and love, eyes such as Saul has seen among the disciples. 
and he stretches out his hands to Saul, and the sorrow on his face is a human sorrow. His eyes are filled with tears. His lips distorted in pain, as though all the anguish of the world had passed into him. And he stretches out his hands to Saul. And the unhappy voice is that of a man who is suffering. Even as Saul has seen so many suffer at his hands. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In his voice, Saul hears the protest of all the Christians he is had beaten or stoned. Who are you, Lord? He asks. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. At, at this moment, Saul must have realized that his whole life was going in the wrong direction. That's disconcerting. He thought he was doing all this stuff to glorify God. But he suddenly realizes he has been fighting against God and against the Messiah and against God's people. He has been on the wrong side. What he's been doing is evil. Can you imagine how devastated he must have felt to realize this in that moment? Well, what should he do next? Simple orders. Get up and go into the city. You'll be told what to do next. So Saul, who is now blinded, gets up, is led by the hand like a blind beggar into Jerusalem or into Damascus, rather. In the meantime, the Lord appears to Ananias, a believer in Damascus, tells him he's to go and heal Saul. Not surprisingly, Ananias is a little bit reluctant. (laughs) I mean, how would you feel? He's probably saying to himself, or maybe even saying to the Lord, how do I know this is not just a trick by this guy, right? And he'll just arrest me and kill me on the spot. And you want me to heal him? You know, maybe, Lord, you know, maybe it would be better if he stayed blind. He can't do so much damage that way, right? <laughs> but he finally is convinced and he obeys. And he goes and Saul is healed. His sight comes back. And he's baptized. So, what does Saul do next? Maybe just take some time off and process all this stuff, right? Might have been a good idea for most of us. But that's not Saul. That's not his style, you know? So we read in Scripture here, at once... At once, he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. His faith propelled him into action. No waiting. And after a while, he did so well 
in this preaching that some of the Jews in the city decided they had to kill him. The Christians found out about it and helped him to escape from Damascus. And then he went on to Jerusalem where another group of people tried to kill him. But he escaped from there also and went back to Tarsus for a time. Saul was a marked man. Do you see that? And this was true all throughout his ministry. He was a marked man because here he was, the former persecutor in chief. And now he was the leading evangelist. Wow. I I remember reading a story years ago about, um, about a KGB man in the old Soviet Union. He was in charge of the unit that was persecuting the Christians. That was his big thing in life. But at some point, watching them die with love in their eyes and with not fear but courage, he was converted. He came to faith in Christ. And you know, what did the rest of the KGB fellows feel about him? Hmm? He was one of us, and now he's one of them. He's going to get it. We hate him more than any person on this earth. And so he fled and hid for a while, but they got him. You know, he was not, he was not a good advertisement for the cause of atheism. <laughs> they caught him and they tortured him to death because they just hated him. And I think that's the way it was with Saul. There were a lot of people that given Saul's background, they just really, really hated him and wanted to get rid of him. And he had to deal with that all through the years of his ministry, as we will see in in future sermons. Well, what can we learn from this story of Saul? We can learn, first of all, that when people meet Jesus, their life is changed. Saul was going down this road of works righteousness, thinking he was earning his salvation by works of the law. He had all the creds, right? All the credentials. And he did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah sent from God to be our Savior. In fact, he emphatically rejected him and his followers and thought he was doing God a favor by killing them. But then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he changed his mind, and he changed his direction. He was going this way, he turned around 180 degrees, went the other way. He realized he was going the wrong way, and he made it a change. He realized he could not earn salvation by good works. He saw that he needed a Savior and saw that Jesus was the Savior. He saw that Jesus was raised from the dead because he saw him and met him on the road to Damascus. He knew that he had to change directions. Instead of fighting against Jesus and his gospel, he needed to make Jesus his Lord and spread the gospel. Now, that is what it means to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. 
Most of us will never have such a dramatic encounter with Jesus as, as Paul did. But we all need to come to a place where we are brought to the end of our own resources. We all need at some point in our life to change our mind. From thinking that we can earn our way to God, I'm a pretty good person, to seeing that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. And we need to see that we have been going in the wrong direction in life and that now we need to turn around 180 degrees and go in the other direction. Have you ever come to that place? I expect most of you have or wouldn't be sitting in these seats this morning, but perhaps some haven't. Have you ever made that decision? I'm a big Star Trek fan, okay? And, uh, and I, I still watch the old Star Trek shows. And, uh, you know, the Klingons, when they're about ready to go into battle, you know, they say, today is a good day to die, you know, and they're all clasping hands, rah, you know. And this morning, I'm going to say to you, today is a good day to live. To receive the life that is really life from Jesus Christ. To invite him into your life. Your whole life will be changed and you'll never regret it. I did this 47 years ago. Before I did it, I had a serious substance abuse problem. And my whole life was a disaster on wheels, rushing down the road, turbocharged (laughs) in the wrong direction. But when I met Jesus, my life changed. And it's been changing a little at a time ever since. Praise the Lord. I hope and pray that you have had that experience too, even if not dramatically, maybe quietly, and that you have come to the Lord. But if you have not, today is a good day to live. Now that leads us to a second point. I'm going to assume that many, many people here, maybe almost all here, have done that. And I'm going to say this. When we come to the Lord, it's a real commitment. It's an all-out commitment. That's what it's really about. It's 24-7. Can't be any less. And I knew that when I came to the Lord. And that's the second thing that we can learn from Paul's conversion story. When Paul came to see that Jesus is the Messiah, he went all out. No half-heartedness. He took the great commandment seriously. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Yes. With all that you are and all that you have. Now, many of us start out our Christian life with that kind of enthusiasm. Something happens along the way. Well, especially as you, you know, it's been a number of years, you know, it's been 47 years for me, and every once in a while I get a little bit slack about this thing, you know. 
I struggle with that. And I wind up getting into some messed up priorities. Not any terrible bad things in and of themselves, but just messed up priorities. What might that look like? Well, let me give you some examples. Man goes out and spends $100 on a sporting event. But the next morning, he puts $5 in the offering plate. <laughs> mm-hmm. A woman spends $3,000 on a cruise. Sounds like fun. But the next day, she can only give $10 for a rescue mission to help the homeless. A couple spends $50,000 on a car, but then they can only give $50 to their favorite missionary. Mm. Now let me make something clear. I'm not condemning here. I'm not, it's not in my job description. <laughs> okay? I'm not, I'm not the judge. God's the judge. And, and I'm not going to condemn you for spending your money in some particular way. It's not my business. And you might look at some things that I spend it on and think the same thing anyway. So we won't go there. I would just want to encourage you to look at the big picture of your spending and ask, who is the Lord of my life? Or, as the saying goes, put your money where your mouth is. Mm. I hear someone in the back row just said, ouch. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of a story from my first church. I was preaching a sermon that was very challenging. And uh, after the, the, the service uh, in that church, they all uh, there was only one door out of the church, and everybody came through and shook hands with the pastor and greeted him. And I got to this one lady, this one middle-aged woman, and she she stared at me and, oh my, stared daggers. And she said, that really pinched. Ouch. <laughs> and I didn't know what to say. I was a new pastor. I didn't know what, you know, what should I say? Just kind of like, oh. <laughs> but I didn't have to say anything. Because right behind her was an elderly lady named Catherine, who I came to love. And Catherine just walked up to her, put her arms around her, and in a very loving and gentle voice just said, Honey, if the shoe fits, wear it. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. <laughs> Another area of our life that we can think about as we think about, am I really all out for Jesus? is the spiritual disciplines. I have known Christians who spend five minutes in the morning reading their uh, daily bread, maybe a few minutes of prayer, and then they're on their way. Well, you know, five minutes, and you know, this, is, this is better than nothing. Okay? But maybe we can think about in the new year, maybe I want to kind of build that time up a little bit. You know? But then people will say, well, I'm busy. I understand. I understand. Probably a lot busier than I am. I'm retired. But they also spend an hour a day on social media and a few hours watching television and on and on it goes, right? What's wrong with that picture? 
Something else we might think about, too, is Christian service. I mean, think about it. The world is falling apart. It needs us. Don't look to Washington for help, <laughs> no matter who's in the office there or in Congress or whatever. It's going to come from somewhere else. It's going to come from the grassroots. It's going to come from the church, if it's going to come at all. And we can do ministries for the addicted, the afflicted, the homeless, the bereaved, children, youth, the unsaved, the unchurched. Well, for that matter, if you're wondering what you can do for the Lord, just read through your connections book. I figured out one time I was reading through it and I said, you know what? By the time you're done with this, you should have come up with 50 possibilities of things you can do. That's pretty good, huh? Choose one. And then maybe later God will have you choose another one too. I remember asking a retired person in one of my churches if he would teach Sunday school. And uh, he had just retired. He was 65 years old. He had just retired and was enjoying it. And he says, Pastor, I'm retired. I don't do that stuff anymore. I did that stuff when I was younger. I'm not doing that stuff anymore. I'm just going to go and hang out with my grandchildren and go on cruises and play golf and go to the beach, all that kind of stuff. And I thought, but I didn't say it. So you've retired from being a Christian? Hmm. And then I remembered there's another man in that church. He was 87 years old, had physical problems like crazy, could hardly even get around anymore, but he taught Bible classes. He was involved with a missionary organization in, in all kinds of ways. He did things, a lot of things on his computer because he discovered there's stuff that maybe he couldn't go out and lift heavy boxes and stuff like that anymore. Well, he sure couldn't. But he could do stuff on his computer that would help these organizations. So he was doing that. And he kept active in one way or another as whatever ways he possibly could right until he died at the age of 93. Praise the Lord. Well, I could give more examples of things that we could think about when we think about, am I really all out for Jesus? <clears throat> the big question is, what is the overall pattern of my life? The Apostle Paul, once he came to faith in Christ, he went all out for Christ and his kingdom. And it was not to earn his salvation. He made that very clear. It was a joyous response to the gift of salvation that he had received. Now it's that time of year to think about New Year's resolutions, right? Many people do. And so we might ask ourselves, do I love the Lord with all I am and have? Is Jesus really the Lord of my life? And, and you know what? Don't get into some guilt trip over it, okay? I find that guilt trips are a dead-end street. 
They don't take you anywhere. They just leave you feeling miserable like you're sitting in a mud puddle wallowing in it. Right? (laughs) That doesn't help. But what does help is a love trip. Okay? God has loved you. Pastor Mike just last week preached about the magnificent love of God. Wonderful sermon. And... And that is the reality of our life as Christians, that magnificent love of God that he has shown to us. And so the question is, how can I love him back with all my heart and mind and soul and strength? How can I change and grow in this new year? How can I move in the direction of being all out for Jesus? How can I live out my love for him? Let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you will guide us as we think about these things. And as we make New Year's resolutions, guide us that we would know what it is that we need to do differently so that we can really be all out for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.